18 of chapter 26, speaking of God, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. What are the outskirts of his ways that he's talking about there? Well, let's see. It's things like stretching the north over the void and hanging the earth on nothing. Um, that sounds like quite a bit of astonishing power to me. But Job says this is just the very edges of God's ways. In fact, he says, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? So we're going to be looking with that perspective into Isaiah chapter 40 this morning and really hearing a whisper about the nature and character of God from God himself. He's going to be speaking to us. And because it's really God that we want to hear this morning and not me and not fancy ideas from other people, I think it's appropriate that we ask right here at the beginning of the service that we hear from the Holy Spirit. This is his word, and he's the one who wants to minister it to us. Uh, you know, I don't even know all of my own needs. I certainly don't know all of yours, but God does. And his word here in Isaiah 40 is applicable to you and to me. And we need to have his Holy Spirit Apply that word right where we're living this morning. So let's bow this morning in prayer as we begin considering God's word in Isaiah chapter 40. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word that we would be ministered to by your Holy Spirit. That you'd speak to us about the greatness and power and character of our God. That we would hear who you think you are. That's going to mean that we're going to have to put aside our preconceived notions that we have about what we think you are. So please help us to do that. And please, by your Holy Spirit, lift the curtain on the greatness and power and majesty and care of our God for us. Speak to us through Isaiah chapter 40, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this morning, again, if you haven't turned there already, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is a series of amazing pictures of the person of God and what he thinks of himself. Now, it's interesting that when we, when we hear from God, um, we need to get some ways to get a handle on infinity. Uh, so, so really, when we think of our great God, we could just stop by saying he's eternal, he's all-powerful, he is invincible, no one can... But what does that mean? And so God gives us some pictures by which to grasp something of the nature and character of who he really is. I wanted to show you a few reasons why pictures are important to us. Actually, I pirated this picture from something my mom posted, uh, and that was me when I was about, about 50 years younger than I am right now. And, um, and uh, you know, you can tell certain things about people from their picture. You can, you can know certain things about them. Uh, you can know something about their place in history. And, and here, if you look at this picture, you can say, you know, um, by what my dad and mom are wearing and so forth, and by the fact that the picture is taking on sepia tones over the years, you can say it was a while ago, can't you? And uh, you can say, maybe even the 60s. Yep, it sure enough was. You can tell by what they're wearing. And so forth. that places us in history. So we get a chance to find our place in history or to demonstrate something about what um, our historical uh, context is by pictures about us. And then pictures also document our growth. You can see, if I were to show you a series of school pictures that I grew up in, in fact, you can see, here I am. I grew up. And uh, so I'm not that small anymore. And, um, and, and so pictures document our growth. They show how we proceed through life. But they also speak to our nature. 
And now a picture of a baby up on a screen is really a little bit difficult to get much of a sense for the nature, uh, for my nature. But if you watch the progression of pictures over the years, which I'm not going to show you this morning, you would at least get a sense for something about the kind of kid that I was growing up. And, and maybe you'd have some sense for who I am now. But it's interesting that you can't know everything from pictures, right? You can tell some things, but you can't tell everything. So what we're going to be looking at as we look at Isaiah 40, again, are pictures of God, but they're not going to give us the entire picture. That's why Job says in the last verse of Job chapter 26, these things, these pictures, are like the very edges of the ways of God. They're just the whisper of who he really is. And so we're waiting to find out more about the character and nature of God. But we get quite a, quite a picture here. When we look at God, so God, as Isaiah says here in chapter 40, uh, he has all these different characteristics, beginning in verse 12, that are shown to us in pictures, but God himself is invisible. So we can't just take snapshots from, from yesteryear and snap them up here and say, this is who God looked like back then. First of all, God's always been the same. Uh, he's never grown up because he was never young. Or maybe you could say he was never old. And he's, but God is just, he is, right? God is. And so when we look at pictures of God, we have to look outside of snapshots or, or baby pictures or school pictures to find out who he is. He is invisible. And so Isaiah pictures him through, and here comes a big word for you. He pictures him, pictures God through anthropomorphisms. If you were to break that word down, it really means human form or shape. So anthrop, human, and form or shape. Morphisms. So God is pictured by Isaiah here through human form and shape. In other words, what God is doing, what Isaiah is telling us about God, is he's ascribing to God human characteristics so that we can understand something of the edges of his ways and grasp the whisper of his character. So we find out when we, when we look at these pictures of God... Just the outside edges. Again, they're anthropomorphisms. So, for example, we'll be talking in a moment about the hand of God. Let me ask you a question. Does God have hands? Well, not really. He's a spirit, right? So God the Father is a spirit. He's invisible. He doesn't have hands. So is Isaiah saying that God genuinely has hands that are super big? No, he's not talking. That's an anthropomorphism. That is a picture of God to give us a way to relate to it. Because really relating to an invisible God that is eternal in his duration and invincible in his power is really difficult to do. So we're getting a way to connect to God through pictures. So uh, those are those anthropomorphisms. And then we want to take a look at some of the actual things that we find. Now, I want to warn you, we are jumping into a context here in Isaiah chapter 40. We're jumping into the middle of a whole discussion that is taking place uh, in the sense that there is history unfolding and Isaiah is revealing it to us. We'll talk more about the context next week as we take the next step forward, but I wanted to jump right into this picture of God. This first picture that we have of God in verse 12, you can look there. This is basically from 12 through verse 25 or 24 are the verses that we're covering this morning, and these these are one picture after another of the nature and character of God. I want just to walk through a few of these with you to give you a sense for who your God really is, who our God manifests himself to be. It says here in verse 12, who, Isaiah is speaking, looking at God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. 
and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. So this is a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is? A rhetorical question is a question that demands a specific answer. So in this, it's, it's not saying, who is this that did this? It's, uh, Isaiah is saying, who has done this? We know who it is. It's God. So let's look at some of these pictures. Waters are held, are measured out by the hand of God. Now, that's a big number up there. That's the number of gallons in the Pacific Ocean alone. Do you know how you say that number? It would, <laughs> good guess. It's quintillion, so you're on the right track. It's, uh, it's 187 quintillion gallons. So what is 187 quintillion gallons? That's just the Pacific, by the way. That's not all the oceans of the world. The actual total number of gallons of water on the Earth are just about double that, they estimate. Uh, so, but that's in the Pacific. That's the one we see right outside our door, so to speak, here in the Pacific Northwest. Here's my hand. And you can notice below that that uh, there's a picture of a, of a tablespoon. That's about how much I can hold in my hand. About a tablespoon. How many tablespoons for you cooks among us are in a gallon? Someone knows probably. 256. 256 tablespoons in a gallon. So when we think of measuring water with our hands. Now, by the way, when I poured the tablespoon of water into my hand, I had problems. I've got it leaking through my fingers and run, running over the edges. And, you know, it's, I can't hold much water. I, and if I were to measure by my hand, um, we'd be a while before we got through a gallon because it would take me about 256 dips to get one gallon measured out. And if you want to know how many times it would take me to empty the Pacific, You're going to have to take 187 quintillion and multiply by 256. That's how long it would take me to empty. So really what we're talking about is a picture of complete impossibility. Is it possible for me to do that? Will that ever happen? No. No. And so, but God says in Isaiah chapter 40, he says, Isaiah looking at God says, he has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. How great is God? Great enough to measure the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand. Like he's measuring it out onto the beaches. And it doesn't take him that long to do it. But that's not where he ends. He says that in addition to that, he measures the heavens with a span. So I actually went out to my shop yesterday to find out if I was an average man, by the way that they say a span typically is. So a span is from the tip of your thumb to the outside tip of your small finger. And I found that if I pressed really hard on my table, on top of a tape measure until my knuckles hurt, I could just about be nine inches. Okay, nine inches. Okay, so nine inches, this is the nine inch measurement. Did you catch what it says God does with a span? Look at what he says God does with a span. He marks off the heavens with a span. Really? Wait, wait a minute now. So God if he were to measure the heavens, would just measure a few spans. Now, he didn't even say a cubit. A cubit was typically from the tip of your finger to your elbow, about 18 inches. No, no, God does it with a span, just a span. And that's how he marks off the heavens. How great are the heavens? Well, I'm not sure we found the end of them yet, but that's how he measures 
the heavens. Just this man. Again, does that mean that God actually has a hand, that he's actually out there measuring like this across the heavens? No. It's saying that God is so great that the heavens are as nothing to him. He's so great that the waters are but a few cups of his hand to measure them out. And then he goes on to say that he measures the dust of the earth in a measure. I didn't know what a measure was, so I had to look it up. And, and then we're here really converting back and forth between dry measurements and liquid measurements. But a measure is about six and a half bushels, and a bushel is just under nine and a half gallons. So roughly you're looking at about 60.5 gallons. So now, think of it. If I had a 50-gallon drum sitting here and two five-gallon buckets, you know, the kind you used to get detergent in if you bought lots of it for a family. Okay, two five-gallon buckets and a 50-gallon drum. All the dust of the earth fits in there. That's all of it. I mean, the whole thing. It's just like a 50-gallon drum and two five-gallon buckets. It's really very, very little to God. That's how great God is. And so God is pictured here by Isaiah as being enormous in his magnitude, phenomenal in his capacity. But the interesting thing is that when we come down to actually looking at God... We sense the gap between ourselves and so great a God, and we want to come up with a way to understand him a little easier. So you find down here in Isaiah chapter 40 and beginning in verse 18 that there's a question Isaiah puts to the people that are hearing him, and he says this, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? What would the answer be if you were just a reasoning, normal person? You're just going to answer this off the basis of the things that we've seen here. God holds the waters. He measures the waters in the palm of his hand. He takes and measures the heavens with a span. He encloses the dust of the earth in a measure. It only takes about 60 and a half gallons for him to measure all the dust of the earth. What would the answer be to this question? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him with? There's really nothing, there is no one that can possibly be considered that great. There just isn't. I mean, we can't talk about Superman. We can't talk about all your favorite uh, superheroes. They, they all fall very far short. But we sense the gap between ourselves and so great a God, and we often do want to come up with a way to understand him a little easier. And so Isaiah says, speaking for the people, an idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So because we find it's difficult to get to span the gap between ourselves and so great and invisible God, we like to come up with a way to translate across our understanding and into the character of God as we perceive him. And so, over the course of history, people have made idols. Notice what they've done with those idols. They have made them out of precious things like gold. They've even cast silver chains for them. So they've taken the best of the things that they could think of and said, let's with this make an idol. Choose a wood, by the way, that won't rot. Ooh, that's a problem because it would be bad to have your god, you know, rotting. And uh, seek out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Oh, in fact, that's another of the problems, is that the idol won't move. It can't move. It has no ability to speak or to move or to talk or to do anything for you. But it's a way that we can somehow, we think, get a link to God. Now, I have to tell you that a number of years ago, um, I was traveling on business with 
one of my kids who will remain unnamed. And uh, I was down in the greater Seattle area. I was coming, I was traveling south on Interstate, or on 405, around the east side of Lake Washington, and I pulled off on an off-ramp. And as I pulled off on the off-ramp, I looked up, and it's one of those sites that you only see every so often in the Pacific Northwest, but there it was, Mount Rainier, unbelievable in its shining glory. And so we pulled up to the stop sign, and I told my son that will remain unnamed, I said, wow, look at Mount Rainier. I mean, how often do you see this? You know, and it was, a, it was an astonishing sight. 14,416 feet of Mount Rainier soaring into the sky, an incredible view of the mountain. And he said to me, it's behind a bush. Because by the time we'd actually pulled up at the stop sign, you really couldn't see the mountain anymore. Because on the other side of the intersection, it was about a 12 to 15 foot high bush that had obscured the mountain. Now, now hang on a second. 14,416 feet of Mount Rainier in shining splendor. A bush, 12 to 15 feet tall. And the bush is actually, in appearance, by perspective, bigger than the mountain. But unfortunately, that's the way we often treat God. And so we come to God, and we have this 14,416-foot tall God, so to speak. Only he's far greater. We'll find out that he actually measures the mountain on a scale. We'll look at that in a minute. But, uh, but we have this great God who is really inconceivable in his, in his splendor. And we have our view blocked by things of our own making. Small things, like a 12 to 15 foot tall bush on the other side of the intersection, just off of 405 on the east side of Lake Washington. So we have a problem here that Isaiah is addressing. He says, you know, our natural tendency is to look at God and then say, well, let's come up with some way to understand him better. Let's get some way that we can kind of grasp the nature and character of God more than what he's told us. And so we'll come up with an idol. You know, an idol is interesting. We say, well, we don't have that problem. We're, we're not idol worshipers. I mean, come check me out. I don't have an idol shelf in my, in my garage. I don't have a Buddha sitting on my, uh, my table. I don't go to a temple where we worship some kind of... No, but we might just be a little more idolatrous in our hearts than, than we sometimes think. Because really, an idol is anything that I've set up to give to me something that only can, God can give. And you say, well, I didn't even intend to do that. I understand, neither did I. But we often do that where we want to get from someone or something things that only God can give. And, and Isaiah says, no idols. It's like, having a, it's like putting a bush in front of you and not being able to see the shining splendor of the greatness of the invisible and immortal God. But it's also true that idolatry has this amazing ability to distort God. So we actually look at God with jaundiced eyes and say things like, I can't believe that God would do this to me. Oh, surely you haven't ever said that, but maybe we have, right? I can't believe God would do this to me. I can't believe that a good God would. You fill in the blank. You know what that is? That's a form of idolatry. Because we are ascribing to God characteristics that he did not ascribe to himself. He is a good God, so whatever my experience is, does not alter his character. So in other words, I don't define God by my circumstance. God defines my circumstance by himself. 
Does that make sense? So as we look at God, we can't put the 12 to 15 foot tall bush of our circumstance out there and say, I'm measuring God by whether or not, you know, he fits the height of my particular bush. No, we measure God purely by what he says about himself. So if he says he's good, then he is good, and he's good in every circumstance. You say, well, I'm going through some really, really hard circumstances. Yes, and God does not deny that your circumstances are hard. He knows the reality of your particular situation. But he is the measure, not your circumstance. And really it's that reality that drives us here as we look at it. They're saying, let's make a picture of God. Isaiah says no, because really every time we try to capture the essence of God in a man-made image, we either shortchange him by our highest imaginings or we distort him by our selfish wishes. So the highest we can conceive is not high enough, right? Based on what Isaiah is saying here, just the first three little pictures we've looked at, 187 quintillion gallons that he measures out with his hands. Oh, by the way, it was about double that. But uh, that was just the Pacific. Uh, but, and, and doing these great things with all the dust of the earth, measuring it in, in a bushel, and, uh, and marking off the heavens by nine-inch segments relative to his nature. We can't really imagine high enough and we just have to say, at the end of the day, God is great, and I can let him be God. But the other problem we have is that we distort him by our selfish wishes. So we make him up to be something that we wanted him to be. So you'll hear this kind of thing, where we uh, begin to say, we emphasize one characteristic of, uh, characteristic of God over another to our own detriment. So people will say, for example, God is love. Is that true? Yes, it is true. It is absolutely true that God is love. In fact, it's his self-definition that we find in 1 John. God is love. But is that the summation of all that God is? No, because he is all things that are good and right and true. He is the very measure for truth. So, oh, truth. So you mean to tell me that God is truth? Yes, we talked in Sunday school this morning about the importance of having an absolute reality, an absolute truth by which all of life can be measured. Yes, God is that truth. He is the measure. He is the measure of all things. And so we can't shortchange him. We can't distort him. The people have done that over the course of many centuries, and we are no exception to the rule. Romans actually talks about exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And so God gave people up to their own imaginings. And let them fall prey to the powerless hand of their immovable idols. But we don't want to be among those people. We want to look at God the way that God really is. So step back one more time with me to chapter, uh, verse 12 of chapter 40. And we want to find out what is it then that Isaiah is whispering through all these pictures. We're going to look at them very briefly here. Through all these pictures about God. So first of all we find out in, in verse 12 that... Isaiah is giving us a picture of the magnitude of God. He's really, really big. And then we find in, in verses 13 and 14, let me read them for you, that God is shown in his wisdom. Who has measured, says Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who did that? Again, it's a rhetorical question. And the answer that's demanded in this case is not God, but who, who did it? 
Who showed God counsel? Who taught him the path of justice? What's the answer that's required by that question? No one, right? No one did this. This, was, this is inherent to the nature of God himself. Why is justice justice? Why is truth truth? Why is it? Because that's who God is. He is the definition. He is the measurement for all of these things. And beyond that, we find Isaiah whispering to us about God's authority. Listen to what he says in verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket. They're accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. You know that idea of a drop from the bucket has been suggested to be that it's like when you drop a bucket into a well and you pull the bucket out full of water. You know what the drop from the bucket is? Well, your bucket's dripping, isn't it? Is it dripping with the contents that are inside the bucket? No, it's dripping because it just got wet. That's the drop from the bucket. Did it affect anything about the volume of the bucket itself? No, it's the outside dripping. It's just the drip, drip that came off the bucket because the whole bucket got wet. In other words, the that's what the nations are like to God. It doesn't affect anything of the character, the nature, the volume, the power, the authority of God himself. And the coastlands, it says, he takes up like fine dust. Going on, it talks about his worth. This is a picture of God's worth. Listen to what it says in verses 16 and verse 16. It says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. You'll remember that Solomon went to Lebanon, right, for all of the cedar to build his uh, amazing temple for God. But if you sacrificed all the forests of Lebanon, huge cedars that grow there, if you sacrificed all those and took all the animals out, it wouldn't be enough to be a worthy offering for a God so great. That's how worthy he is. You know, when Solomon actually did offer a great offering at the dedication of that very temple, he offered 22,000 oxen and 120 sheep. 120,000 sheep. 120,000 sheep. 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. I'm not even sure what that looks like if you put all that many animals together in one place. It had to be a bit of raucous, wouldn't it? I mean, with all the bleeding and all the mang or whatever. Not, and I guess oxen don't mang. What do they do? They moo? Anyway, I'm not sure. So whatever all the noise is and all the dust and all the hooves and all the pounding, there was a lot going on there, and all of those were sacrificed. Let me ask you, was it a sacrifice worthy enough to represent God? Not really. It was a way, it was a token, right? It was a picture. But was it a sacrifice great enough? No, there's really only one sacrifice. We'll talk about that next week that's worthy enough. But 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen were not sufficient. But they were an interesting picture of the greatness and the worth of God. Isaiah goes on to say and gives a picture of God's transcendence. And we find that here in verse 17. In verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Okay, so wait a minute. A minute ago we heard that the nations were like a drop from the outside of a bucket that's been dipped into a well. How much are the nations worth to God now? How much do they relate to him? Did you catch it? Like nothing and less than nothing. Hold on now. The nations seem to have quite a bit of power to me. I mean, they have an impact on my life. I mean, haven't we just been wondering, you know, can North Korea really reach us with, a, with a, some kind of a missile? 
they, they are nothing and less than nothing and emptiness to God. Is that a threat to God? Is he worried about it? Oh, boy. Now we got a problem. What are we going to do? It's like less than nothing. He's not concerned about that. From the standpoint, he is concerned about it. We'll talk about that next week. But he is not concerned about it from the standpoint that in any way it's outside of the scope of his power and capacity. His ability, his power, his capacity are perfect. He is transcendent. This does not impinge upon his purposes or plans. And then we find in verses 21 and 22 an amazing statement on his exaltation a picture of the exaltation of God. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? I've had the opportunity to take a couple of flights with my daughter. We don't go real high. We're in a little general aviation airplane. And I would probably get it wrong if I said it. I think it was a Cessna 172. There we go. Whew, I was right. Okay, Cessna 172. You know what happens as you take off? Everything that was really big on the ground looks really small, right? So we flew around the Bellingham area here for one of the flights we took, and you know what happened? I know where the hills are around here, but you couldn't hardly tell that they were even hills. It, it's like, what? Wow, it looks flat. The whole thing looks flat at only a couple thousand feet in the air, two, three thousand feet in the air. That's all the perspective. But God is much higher than that. He is exalted above all. He is above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants of the earth are like, well, they're like grasshoppers. It's almost even hard to see them because he is so exalted. And then we find out in verses 23 and 24 that he's sovereign. He, God, brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely is their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. This is a reflection on a part of Isaiah 40 that we're not going to get to this morning, but that I want you to notice just for a brief moment. It goes right back to verse 7 of the same chapter and it says here, Isaiah writing, the grass withers... The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. And the rulers aren't accepted from that. The princes are not somehow outside of that. They're not above the law of God and they don't somehow... No, the breath of God blows upon them. He is sovereign over all. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, the prince of princes. He's the ruler of rulers. No one is accepted from his power. He is the sovereign God. So in one sense, we find in, as we look at the nations, we get kind of three vistas through here. We get a picture of the nations as God is dealing with them by his native character. But here we find that God is active in his power. He blows on them. So do you think that a God who is all-powerful, who also is actively involved in dealing with the princes and the nations... Do you think that he might step up to the plate at the point of need and do what is required? Isaiah is arguing here in pictures for God that he in fact will, that the sovereign God will actively demonstrate his power on behalf of his people. How much do you fear Alexander the Great? I'm just sitting right here. How much do you fear him? I mean, did you even hear of him? Oh, yeah, we've heard of him, but we don't fear him much. We're not afraid of Alexander the Great anymore. Why? 
right? How about Nero? He was a really bad guy. You afraid of him this morning? Not too much, because he's gone. How about, okay, let's take something more, Hitler, Stalin. Those are almost in our generation. Are you afraid of them? They're gone, right? And so we fear God, we don't fear people, because he is sovereign over all. God blew on them, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. And then we find another picture, that God is just plain powerful. And we find it here in verses 25 and 26. To whom then, repeating the refrain, will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. What's he talking about? What's he looking up and seeing? The stars. Right. So now notice several things that he says when he looks at the stars. He says, first of all, that God knows their number. Do we know their number? No, we've sure been trying to figure it out, but we still don't know. But God knows more than their number. What else does he know about the stars? He knows their names. Wait a minute. So God not only knows how many there are. We haven't even figured out. We haven't even seen the end of the universe. We haven't even come to that place. God not only knows their number, how many there are out there. He made them all. He knows their names. So God has a name for every star. I'm not sure if they correlate with our names for stars or not. Uh, Probably not. But he knows all their names. And, And get this. He does something more with stars. Look at what it says. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why are the constellations a stable factor in our universe? Because God calls them out every night. He brings them out. He sustains his universe. God does not only create, but God sustains his universe He's actively involved. He actively takes princes and blows upon them and removes them from power, removes them from life. But he also actively responds and deals with his universe in the stars themselves. So God, ultimately we can say, is the superlative sovereign. His greatness is so complete that it leaves really no room for us or for anyone else to share in his glory. There is literally no power, no authority except from God. You'll find that repeated in the New Testament. Romans chapter 13 talks about it. It gives us a really specific application of what that's going to mean to us. There is no authority but from God. Yeah, there's no authority. There's also no magnitude, no wisdom, no worth, no transcendence, no exaltation, no sovereignty, no power. There is nothing outside of the power and the sovereignty and the character of our God. Nothing. We don't even come up with our own solutions to our problems. At least we shouldn't really probably in one sense try. Not outside of God. Within the character of God, working together with him, then we find the solutions to all of our difficulties. But you notice that David says in Psalm 62.5, if you were to look there, he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from For God and the doctor. Is that what he said? For God and the politicians. For God and 
By the way, you're going to wait a long time on the politicians. But, but uh, for God and the politicians, for God and, and whatever else. You, no, it doesn't say that. It's not God and. It's for God because my hope is in him alone. So I wait for him for silence. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. David continues in another psalm, Psalm 145, to say this. He says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. Really, that word unsearchable captures all of these ideas together in one. So we have eight different statements on the character of God here that Isaiah has given us pictures by which we can see who he is and what he does. He's, he is invincible in his magnitude, his wisdom, his authority, his worth, his transcendence, his exaltation, his sovereignty, and his power. But really, we can bottom line say that his greatness is just unsearchable. We can't find the end of it. So we'll never finish exploring the greatness of God. We'll never come to the place where it ends. Later on, 15 chapters later in the book of Isaiah, we find that God demonstrates and gives us another picture of him. And in Isaiah 55, he says in this way of picturing what it means to be unsearchable, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your, my way, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You're going to try and outthink God? Try and figure things out for him to counsel him what to do? Oh, that's an idol. We don't, no one gives counsel to God. God alone speaks for himself and in his sovereign majesty executes all that he has decided. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Can I just note that it's not only that they are higher, but they are better? They're better. So when we walk in with our plan that we're sure we want God to execute, God has something that is even better. He might ask me to give up my plan, and it might hurt. He might have to pry my fingers off of it. But the goal is to say, oh God, here is what I see. What is it that you see? Where do you want to go? What is it that I can do to cooperate together with you, oh God? Because his plan is higher, but his plan is also better than the best thing that I could imagine for me. In the New Testament, we have a reflection on Isaiah chapter 40 from the Apostle Paul, and it's in Romans 11. And this is what he says. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Again, ways that we can capture these eight different characteristics of God. How inscrutable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. Do you hear the reverberations off of Isaiah 40, 13 right there? Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And then he, and then he reflects from Job 41. He says, or who has given a gift to him, to God, that he, God, might be repaid? Have you ever done anything to put God in your debt? No. And so he continues and concludes this way, for from him, from God, and through God, and to God are all things. Let me say it this way for you. Everything that we have came from God. Everything that we have came from God. And through him, nothing can touch us apart from God. Nothing can touch us apart from God. And to him, our whole future is in the hands of God. 
From him, everything that we have came from God. Through him, nothing can touch us apart from God. To him, our whole future is in the hands of God. So because of that, however big my problems, God is bigger still. However unfathomably great my need, he is greater still. And these, my friends, are but the whisper of his power. These are just the fringes of his ways. What, Job says, is the thunder of his power? If that's true of God, and I'll assert from the word of God in Isaiah chapter 40, it is, then we have to say, if these truly are only a whisper of God's ways, why should we not trust him? Why should we not trust him? This God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. This God, whose ways are unsearchable, whose plans are inscrutable, whose understanding is beyond our highest conception, this God is our God. This God is your God. This God is the God who will carry you through times when you don't know what to do. This is the God who has the answers to problems you can't resolve on your own. This God is our God.